Welcome to the Startup Grind podcast. Startup Grind is the world's largest startup community, inspiring, educating, and connecting millions of entrepreneurs across the globe. These are the stories of disruptors, innovators, and game changers from the fastest high growth companies and venture capital firms in existence. Join us as we unpack their strategies, learn from their mistakes, and grow together. There is no time to wait, so let's begin. This episode is brought to you by Oracle for Startups. Hey all, welcome back. Startup Grind Global Podcast. I'm your host, Chris Jonu, and today you're in for a treat. We have the youngest female founder of a unicorn company. It's a big statement. Take it in. Uh, Lucy Liu from AirWallex, massive fintech, um, started in Melbourne now, taking over the globe. Lucy Liu is the co-founder and president of AirWallex. She is responsible for the company's branding and operations. And before establishing AirWallex in 2015, Lucy was an investment consultant in CICC, China International Capital Corporation, and served as the board director of Hongstone Investment Development Limited, a Hong Kong-based investment company. Lucy has won a series of awards for her outstanding entrepreneurial achievements, including Ernst Young, Top 22 Entrepreneurial Winning Women in APAC in 2019, Ernst Young, Australian Entrepreneur of the Year 2018, and Forbes 30 Young Entrepreneurs in Asia 2017. Airwallex just keeps going from strength to strength. I definitely recommend checking it out if you're looking at uh, you know, reducing international fees and, and um, you know, getting money um, in and out of China. Incredible product for startups. Check it out. You can just kind of spin up accounts in two seconds flat. Um, yeah, you know, highly recommend it. And I uh, hope you enjoy the conversation. Cheers. Thank you very much for joining us. Lucy, can you go back a little bit and give, you know, everyone a bit of context around, um, you know, how the company got started and, and, and how you and, and Jack and, and, and uh, everyone got together and, and, and why this was a problem you wanted to solve. Sure. Um, so for those of you who are not familiar with Airwallex, we were founded in 2015 in Melbourne. And initially it was uh, just four or five of us um, in a small service office um, trying to make it work at a startup and the reason behind I think the whole I guess story behind our was that um, we were running a small business which is a cafe um, which is still operational in um, South uh, sorry uh, Docklands <laughs> I forgot the name of the location and during the process of setting up the coffee shop we ran into a lot of issues around making global transfers so paying our suppliers uh, securing stock um, fx you know all of those things which was just very painful um, doing it through the bank so the initial idea was for airwalls was basically to have a very easy to use and cheap platform for businesses and specifically small businesses. But I think, um, you know, in the first or two years of, in the process of developing a product, we found a lot of opportunities in APIs, which is why um, I think uh, a lot of people didn't really uh, hear about us until recently because uh, we didn't really open up a lot of our products to smaller businesses, even though the 
whole idea of air wallets was to serve smaller businesses. And uh, we are now into our fifth year and uh, we have broadened our features beyond just cross-border payments and also offering end-to-end uh, -end financial services as a platform. And uh, for SMEs, we just launched uh, a lot of features um, that really help, uh, I guess, the modern businesses um, become more global and also uh, have access to the same level of service as bigger businesses. And I guess to survive <laughs> in this digital age and in this fast growing um, economy. And it's actually proving to be very, um, I guess, useful during this crisis as well, because we find a lot of businesses are now trapped at home and now able to you know, operate without um, everything uh, being accessible through their computers. And yeah, so I guess that's in a nutshell, um, Air Wallets in the past five years. So, um, you know, the, the, you know the, the initial appeal to me, right, and you know, I was doing importing and stuff at the time was obviously um, the ability that you had to kind of get payments out of China. Was that, was that like mm -hmm. a big, big, big part of the success? Because it just seems like, um, such a pain in the ass to do and even still now um, um, so was that do you think you made like that was how you got to kind of set yourself apart and, and, and set you on that growth path uh, so I think uh, we were quite lucky in the sense that an early investor of us actually had a lot of knowledge in the payment space in China and I think it's it's China is only, a, I guess, a piece of the puzzle, right? There's a lot of countries that have, um, like, uh, payment restrictions or, you know, capital controls, so to say. So you can't transact uh, the currency freely outside of that domestic market. And I think uh, what was interesting about China was because, uh, because uh, everyone sort of, no China is difficult, but nobody really figured it out. And all the payments company in China is able to transact uh, cross-border, but they don't really have the rest of the world. And what I guess made Airwallex uh, attractive in the market is that we, we had sort of our own network figured out. So not only we have China, but also we are able to offer the rest of the world as a service to the Chinese payment companies, as well as the Chinese e-commerce platforms. And so that's sort of the process that we followed for um, each of the other markets that we tried to enter throughout the years. So we started with China and then we went to Southeast Asia, um, where there is a lot of like rules around what you can and cannot do uh, cross-border in terms of payments and financial services as well. But I think um, over time, because we are able to build that network by ourselves, um, as a, uh, as a, so we're sort of offering that infrastructure piece as a product and as a service now to other um, companies who are looking to access that market. So you, you touch on a really good point around, you know, every jurisdiction having each of their, you know, all of these problems. Is that like, 
is that something you were kind of mindful of, you know, day one that this was going to, you know, or is it you get to work one day and like, oh, shit, now we're going to figure out, you know, Thailand. <laughs> it's like. Yeah, it's exactly like that. Um, even though we, we knew that every country is very difficult, we still have to prioritize, right? Like, because basically everything up till, uh, I think, mid 2019 was quite self-driven so basically we had clients who tell us oh this is what we need and you know this is the features these are the countries these are the currencies and obviously it's more like a commercial decision um, where you know you have to present you know what volume can you process through that corridor um, in order to have a banking partner or have regulators support you and but because i think the level of scale that we're operating right now we're becoming more uh product driven and tech driven so in a way that we are almost preempting what the customers may need in the future and then building it ahead of time instead of them coming to us and then having to wait you know six or 12 months uh, in order for that to be launched yeah and you've and you, like you touched on you touched on the regulators, right? And and like mm-hmm. you, you know, and I know if I get the story right, um, you and you know, I think Jack had to quite convince the you know the your developer a few times before he came on board. If I got if I got that story right, like with the product that you, he was finally uh, willing to you know join the team with, you've got you know um, David. If I've got it right, if I got it right, Harvard MBAs. You've got a really mm-hmm. like crazy team um how, how do you you know is that been you know part of the part of the strategy or you know are you you tell me about how you scaled and managed to get so many you know you know attractive uh, employees so i think for the first two or three years it was to be frank really really difficult <laughs> like um at least for the senior hires. And we had to convince quite a lot of people through our personal networks to really present you know, the vision. And some people really like, um, I guess in a way were on a, on a sort of lookout for, for like you know, six to 12 months, seeing how the pro- business is progressing. And, um, you know, and I think in a startup, it's always very fast paced. But a lot of people joined having almost, I think, a uh, unrealistic expectation <laughs> in a way um, and not finding structure, not finding um, a lot of things that they sort of expect to be already existing for a company that's worth, you know, half a billion dollars or, you know, so they would imagine things that are already in place and then realizing it's not and then quickly leave us. So we've sort of learned that lesson. And I think, um, you know, with Dave and all the other um, uh, people that we've hired were mostly after Series C. So when the company really became more stable, but again, when they came in, there were a lot of missing pieces, but these people are willing to really get their hands dirty and really work on, I guess, multiple roles throughout the organization. And I think at the end of the day, it's really about whether they actually believe in a vision or not, even though it sounds really, you know, cliche, but it's really about that. And having 
really no expectation almost like Jeanette uh, she joined us from like 20 something years managing partner of POAS uh, top leading legal firm and uh, she really had almost no one when she first onboarded but I asked her you know like whether you know it's an issue or not she said you know it's it's really about um, yeah so it's really about whether um, that person is willing to make a commitment to the business and really contribute um, what they want to do. And yeah, so I think uh, a lot of time is, it's about the expectation you present to them and also whether you're in a way sugarcoating everything. And then in, when they join, it's not exactly like how they pictured it. So startup is not for everyone. Even now we're a lot bigger with 450 people, we're still a startup. So yeah, it really depends on the person. And, 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 you know, you mentioned selling the vision, right? You, you guys mm. had some like, you know, Sequoia, China, um, Tencent, massive, massive investors, big rounds. Can you, can you share a little bit about, obviously, you know, you obviously know how, know how to sell, sell the vision to some big investors. So how, how did those conversations take place and, and were they just on board with, with what you were trying to do and you knew it would take quite a bit of cash to kind of, you know, deal with all the regulators to scale globally to kind of um, compete at a global level. What were those common conversations like, and and um, what were some of the learnings? I suppose. Um, so I think the conversation would be a little bit different uh, at each stage of our I guess life cycle. So in the beginning, it was um, really about the people, like the the founding team who we have. Um, you know, uh, what experience do we have? So basically our CVs, right? And uh, whether we know what we're talking about. So there, there, there will never be an investor who know better uh, than yourself about your own business. And a lot of times I think first they have to be interested in the industry um, itself and also, you know, know the space well enough to know what value or um, what's your proposition and what make the what difference you can make to the market? And I think uh, going forward into like Series B or C, then it became a lot more financial driven. So basically, your growth model or your uh, profit model, and whether you have the right economics to make it work. Um, obviously, they still look for who is leading team. Uh, or, you know, the senior management team and, you know, what experience they have. But at the end of the day, it's really just about um, your growth trajectory. And uh, learnings. Um, so I think we, because the space we operate in was, was quite niche in the first few years, so nobody really knew anything about cross-border payments. Everyone thinks we're a remittance company. Um, we had to do a lot of investor education. So actually spending a lot of time workshopping with them and trying to, um, I guess, uh, really educate them on uh, the potential of uh, what uh, the potential of AirWallets and FinTech. And because FinTech, a lot of times people think it's just an application of financial services. 
that is you know tech, technology driven or it's online or but a lot of times you know we find that now the difference is really on the infrastructure side not so much on the application layer because anyone can really do a really good app but if you don't have the right uh, foundation you, you can't really make it work and i think that's why our investors really uh are onboarded with what we're doing because fundamentally we are building our own infrastructure and we're not just another app that has millions of users because you know uh, as much as we want to be like a purely tech company you still need all the right compliance and regulations in place and reg regulatory licenses in place and that's something that uh the new joiners can't uh get quite easily as a late interest to the uh, in the industry and i think you know if they want to bet in payments or bet in fintech then they have to find someone who is really sort of leading the way in terms of uh, both technology and uh, I guess the right people and the right licenses. So is the, so the plan moving forward and you said you took, you know, got to focus on products now that people can just from all around the world can kind of build apps on top, on top of air wallets and become like as well, in addition to having your own products, but being that infrastructure for everyone else to, Build on top of. Uh, so we launched our, I guess, uh, platform and um, infrastructure product early last year. Yeah, and we've had quite a few companies who who ride on that um, to build their own wallet system, their own sort of uh, settlement system, uh, and merchant uh, sort of uh, payment system. And, um, and we really see a lot of value in that because, you know, if you compare to the same client, um, you know, one year ago, they might be only transacting, you know, 100,000 through, through our network, but now doing like 10 times or 100 times that because they're able to really scale that part of their um, uh, platforms through our services and we're able to offer them access to multiple markets uh, you know and then obviously opening up the doors to uh, the consumers and businesses in each part of the world because you know if you can't collect money and pay into that country you might as well not be able to you know like um, uh, do business in that country right so i think down the track we're looking to expand that offering um to beyond just fx payments collection but also to include so for, for example um i think last week we just had a uh, client who uh, completed a lending transaction on our platform but it was through a partner and so i think whether it's for um, you know other businesses to build on top of our infrastructure or have uh, an integration in place where people can access multiple uh, you know multiple services through one single connection, um, the uh, the ecosystem I guess really makes sense and we are really invested in it and we're looking you know to 
for example, you know, we, we now have a zero connection. Uh, we have others, uh, logistics, and a whole bunch of other services that we want to um, have on our platform for our clients. I, I, I know I'm quite familiar with the, the scale product you have, which is yeah. a really interesting concept. And, you know, for anyone that, 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 you know, that doesn't know where you kind of help facilitate, you know, the buying and selling on marketplaces like a 99designs or an Airbnb or whatever, that kind of marketplace scenario and launching your own product and then allowing people to kind of create their own Airwallex accounts um, within those um, new products. Has that, has that been a, a you know, a, a great, um, a great product for you? And has there been some interesting uptakes of, of, uh, of the technology? Yeah. So I think the, uh, initially we were uh, thinking, so basically it's, it's a platform product and it's for uh, platforms that have, uh, basically needs of collecting sub-accounts for their merchants or people who operate on that platform. So to, I guess, to give an example, we would have, say, e-commerce platform hold a master Airwallets account. And for each of the merchants that sell on that platform, they will have a sub-account, which is also another Airwallets wallet. And then they will be able to uh, settle quite easily and exchange the currencies uh, between the wallets, between the master account and the sub account. And when basically uh, the merchants need to pay the platform for any advertising services or, you know, logistic services, subscriptions, they are uh, they able to deduct directly from their Airwallet wallet. So basically everything is within one master wallet and it's basically just a uh, ledger um, transaction so instead of actually uh doing it through banks where it's quite complex and it's very slow um but obviously if people want to withdraw that money into their own bank account they're still able to do it through um Airworks, uh web app and i think the interesting part is almost every e-commerce or platform business want their own financial product. So basically it's a way of monetizing their existing merchants. And, uh, but it makes no sense for them to build that themselves. And so instead, uh, the quickest onboarding we've had on scale was only two weeks. So you can basically have your own mini PayPal within, within like two weeks time. And, that was actually quite attractive because uh, people who sell on the uh, who sell on the um, platforms really actually trust the platform, and as this is a lot quicker um, than having their own uh, wallet system. And yeah, so I think um, it's been quite interesting. We're exploring different um, user cases beyond just e-commerce now, uh, online education, online streaming, basically any scenario where there's one platform and multiple merchants, um, there is a possibility of expanding uh, what we do on scale. Very cool. Mercedes-Benz wants a carbon neutral passenger fleet in less than 20 years. We're about to tell you what startup technology is helping them. Hi, it's Mike Stiles, and this is Meet the Startups for the week of August 5th, brought to you by Oracle for Startups. When you think about blockchain, you might think about digital currency. Well, keep thinking. It's also revolutionizing supply chains and driving sustainability. 
Take Mercedes-Benz, for example. Blockchain lets them track and see every complex link in their supply chain, even their carbon footprint. So they set out a goal. Let's have a carbon-neutral new passenger fleet in less than 20 years. You don't do something like that alone. So Oracle connected them with the London-based startup Circular. Circular's solution, which runs on Oracle Cloud, is creating transparency around CO2 emissions in the cobalt supply chain. That gives Mercedes-Benz the kind of visibility they were looking for, one that's delivering timely, critical, actionable insights about the EV battery supply chain. And, of course, Circular has a major enterprise client story to tell. This week, we asked Circular co-founder Vera Johnson how blockchain is helping add trust to supply chains, workers, and consumers. As consumers, we are becoming more aware that what we buy has consequences for people and the planet. Increased transparency in supply chains to reduce exploitation or reduce carbon footprints is a big driver for responsible business. Blockchain helps by enabling trust in the information about the flow of goods along the supply chain. Is your startup ready to disrupt or respond to disruption on the technology side? Having the right partner in place is a big part of that. Take a look at Oracle's startup program at oracle.com slash startup. Look, I, I, you know, given the context of of what's going on in the world, I definitely want to cover some of, some of, uh, you know, the things you've been dealing with and, and try and get some, you know, some advice, I suppose, for the, for everyone joining. And then I'll try and get into some of these questions as well, because I'd love to, I'd love to, I'd love to stay on a bunch of questions, you know, with, <laughs> with just with the air wallet stuff, to be honest. But um, um, if we could just just go through, you know, your, you know, the last few months for you, which would be interesting. Um, were you were you just home on a holiday when everything kind of started happening on, you know, with the virus? How how did that kind of all play out for you personally um, before, like, we get into the business stuff? Uh, so. I, I'm actually based in Shanghai now. Um, so I was uh, spending my Chinese New Year in China and actually planning on going back to Australia uh, in February when um, the basically the lockdown just happened and everyone started working from home. And one, I wanted to be here for the team who are working from home because, you know, founder support is always very valuable. Um, two, I think it's, it just became too difficult to go back to Melbourne. And then obviously all the flights were canceled. Everyone's in Melbourne started working from home. So I just, I just stayed in Shanghai. Um, so that's my personal side. And actually to share an interesting story, my in-laws live in uh, Wuhan. So the, actually the middle of, um, coronavirus and we've been uh, having a lot of calls and you know video chats um, throughout the f- last few months and uh, last night Wuhan just uh, officially ended the lockdown so people are able to um, leave and go to Wuhan now so that's been quite actually a very emotional um, uh, day for everyone who lived there because uh, it's just been a really long period of time when people are living in panic and um, crisis. So yeah, and on the business side, so Airworks China offices started working from home the last day before Chinese New Year, so 23rd, 20, 23rd of January. And we returned to the office on the 2nd of March. 
um, and we've been back in the office for about a month now. So can you go through some of the, um, I guess you're going to have to rewind a bit for us here, but if, you know, um, cause we're kind of just getting into these, you know, t- some of the tough conversations that we're having, um, you know, with our companies locally. Um, yeah. what was, how did that kind of the conversation in the boardroom kind of go? Well, you know, on, via zoom, if that was the case around, this is a thing, you know, how are we going to deal with it? What, what, you know, what kind of, um, you know, are we making cuts? Are we going to, you know, what, what are we, what are we doing? How, what was that kind of conversation like? And, and, you know, were you looking at it through a lens of optimism, you know, what, what, how, um, were you trying to put a, you know, a, a fictional timeline on it all? What was that kind of initial conversation like? And then how did you kind of deal with the, you know, the remote element and everything that kind of came after, after the initial, the initial bit? So I think luckily Chinese New Year is when everyone actually stays home, unless you, you have holiday plans and everyone just sort of uh, cancel their holiday plans. So it was quite easy for us to first do a quick survey of where everyone is, because um, most of people went back to their hometown uh, to celebrate Chinese New Year. And then we, uh, I think what was good because uh, with the, how Chinese government handled is there was quite clear legal um, guidelines around what we need to do as a business and um, what restrictions are on people um, traveling interstate and between cities. And uh, Warwick and I was just talking about the green QR code that we made with everyone's movement um, that sort of quickly able to tell where you were in the past 14 days and whether you know, you're considered as a safe person or you have to self-quarantine. Um, so with that knowledge, um, the Airworks uh, management team got together, I think every week to talk about how long we're gonna be working from home. And because I think as a tech company, we have all the Zoom, Slack set up before and you know, so it wasn't, too difficult. We just had to make sure that everyone is still engaged with the business. And um, I think we were we we were swinging between optimism, optimism and cautious. So we, we don't want to be over optimistic and everyone started, you know, going out and ignoring like social social distancing and all those things. But we want people to be well educated um, about the virus itself. So we run a couple of training sessions uh, through Zoom uh, so that people really had a good understanding very early on when it first uh, was spreading around and how to protect yourselves and you know how to minimize the risk, obviously, for, for you and your family and obviously the, your colleagues. But everyone's working from home. so. It was really about when we can return to the office. And we actually shared that knowledge quite early on with our other offices. Um, So Melbourne had a simulated working from home in February uh, before everyone was working from home. So we actually found out what the gaps are between um, your imagination of working from home and reality of working from home. And we had people take home equipments, uh, make sure everything is set up so they actually have somewhere to uh, work um, as if they're in the office. And I think because of the 
like multicultural um, nature of airwalks. We had quite a good uh, sharing sessions and you know uh, knowledge um, transfers between the offices so that people actually know what is going on here and you know uh, what is going on in Melbourne and in other countries as well. So I think uh, that really helped us through this time as well and and was that was that we on Slack, Lucy, or where, where were you kind of keeping that central? Where were people like from cross continents sharing? Okay, uh, Slack. So we have Slack channels set up, and then we had company all hands where we do it through Zoom. Yeah, and, and obviously then, the founders were talking all the time about what is happening because I was in Shanghai and Jack and the others were in Melbourne, so they were asking me constantly about what is going on in Shanghai. And and a, a couple of questions on that, and then I'll go to the the audience. Um, you know, we I was recently with the Draper Startup House on this kind of remote work. We did a, a a conference on you know this same kind of topic stuff, and we had there was an expert on there that was saying that generally um, uh, people were more productive, you know, during remote work. And I think it's, I think he's the reason sounded you know made sense to me around. You know, we've got to catch up with our boss once a week or so, and and we want it to seem like we've we've got a lot covered. So we actually work more um, to to have some you know some sort of you know monumental progress as opposed to what we'd actually get done in the office. Did you did you was there any advantages to um, productivity in terms of working remote? Um, so I think with working remote, really have to make sure that you have the right tools in place. So whether it's a Trello board or some kind of tracker so that you're able to basically still have uh, like a result driven or process driven sort of scenario. Otherwise people might find it hard to concentrate um, in a way that you know, you're not really collaborating with your team, you're sort of working alone. Um, we had Zoom groups set up as if, you know, you're working in the office. So all the teams had their own uh, rooms where they can have discussions and feel like they're next to their colleagues. And uh, in terms of productivity, I think taking away the, you know, the need to commute to the office, obviously that sort of helped, uh, helped a lot of people. So in a way, if you're taking two hours to go to the office every day, you don't need to do that anymore. Um, but what we find is that efficiency might have reduced a little bit because um, you're not as collaborative as you are in office. And I think especially for our business, we need to be very collaborative. Um, but working hours might have gone up quite a bit for our engineering team. <laughs> Because the, what our engineering had, had said was because people had nothing to do at home, they might as well just code on their computer. Um, I'm not sure if that's a joke or not, but um, apparently that was the case for our uh, tech team. Um, yeah, but obviously people had to shift how they work. Like, for example, our marketing team can no longer do offline events. Now everyone's doing online streaming. They're doing online courses for our um, client engagement, um, a lot of focus on digital acquisition as opposed to offline acquisition. Uh, our BDs can't travel, so they're spending really spending this time um, on training and 
uh, building up their product knowledge instead of uh, meeting clients and going to other cities. So I think there's a shift in how people work. Um, yeah, so I think it's been an interesting and challenging couple of weeks. Very cool. Um, just from a macro level and, you, you know, mm-hmm. you, you kind of have the, this, you know, the ability to, you know, oversee a bunch of businesses doing global trade. Um, is there, is there anything that like kind of stands out for you? Is there any, you know, maybe, um, unexpected opportunities, just anything that you've kind of noticed from a macro level that could be helpful to the entrepreneurial community or, um, advice on what not to do, I suppose. So I think it would be not be a surprise that, you know, online travel agents basically don't have any business anymore. So just to a little background. So um, Airworks has uh, seven or eight industries that we focus on as our clients, uh, e-commerce, logistics, online travel, online education, um, conferencing and uh, gaming and digital. So obviously, you know, traveling, travel has been quite basically non-existent for two months now. Um, e-commerce, I think on the macro level is really affected by the lack of logistics. Basically, there are no planes flying around and people have like restrictions on shipping. So that's sort of what is stopping e-commerce because otherwise domestic e-commerce has been quite booming. People just staying home and ordering everything online. Um, But cross-border has been quite hard because there was just basically no way for uh, shipments to leave and clear car, uh, uh, clear customs and uh, go to another country. Um, thinking, well, I just talked to a friend of mine who does um, e-commerce trade, so exporting from Australia to China. Um, previously, uh, his parcels would only take four or five days to arrive at the consumer in China. Now it takes six weeks. Wow. So I think it's it's really not the sell side that is affected, but really the uh, the shipping and all the, um, I guess the back end of what is going on that's been uh, really quite challenging for e-commerce. Um, but unsurprisingly, you know, digital and online education has been becoming very popular. So all the kids are being homeschooled um, in some countries, and um, People are spending more time, you know, on, on, on online streaming and all those digital sort of platforms. So that side has been quite uh, uh, booming. Um, so Vigo is one of our clients. They are sort of, uh, they are in partnership with TikTok. So TikTok has been very, very popular wow. <laughs> because people just staying home and shooting videos of themselves. And... <laughs> So, so we're really observing um, a lot of changes and shifts in um, where our volumes are coming from. And I, I think I saw, a, 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 I think it's a joke on Twitter about who drives the um, digitization of your business, your CEO, your CTO, or COVID-19. <laughs> so it's, it's, it's really interesting how, to see how people are adapting to uh, I guess this special period of time, you know, restaurants are now offering online um, takeaways instead of dying now. So, yeah, um, lots of things that's happening. And I think even post 
um, the lockdowns and all of this, there are certainly a lot of things that would change instead of, in terms of how people would work and how people would go about their everyday. Um, so, yeah. so I think. Have any of those insights been beneficial to your business that you would not have seen, you know, if it wasn't for the current climate? Um, I think in a way, like we think the, the, um, the client sort of segmentation is still roughly the same, but we, I guess in a way we didn't expect um, how quickly businesses are transiting into like a digitization sort of scenario because we thought you know a lot of offline businesses would continue to be operating that way instead of adapting to technology so quickly but surprisingly I think a lot of people are making the change and it, very responsive and recognizing that you know this may not be just a short-term crisis and maybe quite long lasting and potentially fundamentally change how how their business will operate sure fantastic we'll try and do a few more like this and um, um, thanks for joining us thank you very much Lucy. thank you for tuning in to keep up to date with all things startup grind visit us at startupgrind.com or join us at any event in a city near you until next time Chase the vision and keep hustling.